You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. The only show that I know of that airs every Monday. <laughs> with us. 5 a.m. With both of us. Um, but enough the specific spe- song. <laughs> no, yeah. But no, you know, that's right. The only show that features you and me every single week <laughs> at 5 a.m. on Mondays. I am shocked because I was looking at the numbers when we were saving the earlier episode. I'm like, good night. We've been doing this for a while. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. We, we This is episode 146, I believe. Insane. So, yeah, it's it's kind of cool. I, I appreciate everyone out there who's who's been encouraging to us to keep going and keep doing this. We hope that what we're saying makes sense and is making a difference and helping you grow in your faith and your knowledge of the Bible. I mean, it's, it, it really is uh, something I have wanted to be able to do for a long time. And this definitely gives us a, a platform to, to help people out. So I'm, I'm excited to see where the next little while takes us again. This isn't like an anniversary number or a major benchmark. It's just, we happen to notice there's, there's a lot going on. So, well, you know, uh, and, it provides me an excellent excuse to buy new Bible books. So, you know, that this is one of the things I enjoy about doing this show, because you can never have too many of those. But Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Bible, um, I guess we should go on ahead and get out there and talk about what we were talking about. So we, last time we left, there was the lady from... I, I want to say Krakoa, but that's the island from X-Men. I know that's not correct. <laughs> Tekoa. Um, Tekoa. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not not X-Men. So we got Star Wars in last time. We get X-Men in this time. And uh, we'll see how many other sci-fi references we can make. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's not yeah. a contest. You mean there's no prizes? Uh, darn. No. Okay. No. okay. We don't have the budget for prizes here. <laughs> Evidently not. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, this was uh, we're, we're in the middle of Joab's plot to get David to do what Joab thinks he should do. And he has recruited this woman from Tekoa, uh, a city that the rabbis say was known for its wisdom. We mentioned Zamora didn't necessarily support that view, but that it is also the, pro- uh, the birthplace of the prophet Amos and that she was recruited to to tell David what Joab wanted David to hear, but couldn't hear from him. And there's a good possibility Joab's probably playing on David's kind of a weakness for women here because he does listen to her. And we had left off. I'd started into verse seven, but I'm just going to pick up with um, the first part of that again, because uh, we did, you know, we left off in the middle of the verse and, uh, even though it's only been like what a couple hours for us i I was summoned to chase pigs between episodes yeah yeah normally normally when we do multiple episodes in one day we do them about you know 10 or 15 minutes apart but emily had to go and uh put her daughter's (laughs) pigs back in their pen and 
I had to go pick my oldest daughter up from golf camp. Um, right. Seems like a weird sentence to say um, for people who have known me for a long time, but you know, it, she enjoyed it, and I'm excited. She she found something <laughs> she seems to enjoy doing, so we'll see how long it lasts. Exactly. So now I'm we're, we're like grinding gears to get back into to the flow here. So uh, yeah, yeah, because it's, so, it's been a couple hours now. Yeah. Chapter 14, verse 7, uh, it says, And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. This is the woman talking to David. Against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so, you know, she's already kind of made this, this allusion to Genesis 4, that the sons had uh, been fighting in a field, and one of them killed the other. And she's presenting this, this story to David that allows him to identify with her plight to to kind of build some sympathy and some empathy for her and in very mm. much in keeping with what nathan did with the story of the man with the, the single sheep and the rich man who killed him and you know she's playing on david's emotions and again this is one of the signs of wisdom what works not what's moral not what's ethical what will work and you know, David probably was having to deflect and defer and try to downplay to his supporters why he hadn't gone after Absalom. Because as a king, you know, he obviously has connections in Gesher. He, he, he had married the king of Gesher's daughter. So to be able to go there and, and to get his son back and, you know, enact justice for the fact that Absalom had killed Amnon would have been... Um, been one of his duties as a family um just as a family member because in numbers 20 35 verses 30 34 we have this principle of the blood avenger the the one who's supposed to go out and enact justice on behalf of a family member that's been killed by someone else and you can go back and read that and it talks about all the very specific ways in which one person can kill another uh, it, it's kind of funny whenever you, you read through and you're like, okay, why do we have to have this list about ways that one person can kill another? Um, why are we so specific? And one of the things to keep in mind when you're reading the Torah, you're reading case law. And well, like, you're, you're, you're reading case law. You're also reading legal. I mean, just the, the company and not company, the countries, <laughs> it, you know, their civil law as well. A lot of it. It's mm -hmm. it's not just religious laws. I mean, think of how many. I mean, if you were to look at all of the documentation we have in America about what constitutes murder and manslaughter, first, second, third degree, and all those mm -hmm. various options, um, you know, then you'd see that the Bible actually says very little <laughs> about right. it. Right. We have law libraries in this country. That That's normal. And we have people who specialize in certain elements of the law because our, our laws are so comprehensive in, co in contrast to 613 laws of the Torah, which were the, the legal, the civil, the, the moral, the ethical, the religious laws for an entire country in a Property brand new laws. country. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, real, real so, estate law, that's what it is. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and the thing is, with, with case law, what it does, it takes this most extreme examples that, that can possibly be thought of. And by making a ruling on these extreme and even bizarre situations, then the, the reader is supposed to be able to extrapolate back to lesser scenarios. And so 
in in numbers you get these these different ways that a person can be killed and then it says that there's no ransom for this person if there's a murderer you don't ransom them that the land should not be polluted by this this violent act the shedding of blood and so the only one who has the authority to suspend this kind of judgment is god which of course we first see in genesis 4 when cain kills abel God does not kill Cain. He, he gives Cain the mark so that Cain can go on and live his life. And so we we've, we've see this enacted also within David's life because when David repents, what does God do? God says, you're, you know, Nathan tells him, you're not going to die. Now, there's still going to be consequences because despite what so many people want to do with the Bible where they want to remove, uh, well, they want to make condemnation and consequences synonymous, that that's not how it works. The, the physical, tangible consequences of our sin still play out in this world. God doesn't revoke those. What he revokes mm-hmm. is the condemnation, and the condemnation is of an eternal matter, and it, it's of a status matter. It, it's not necessarily about the things that might happen in our day-to-day life. And so God had removed, um, removed the condemnation. God removes the condemnation and salvation. And with David, he chose to suspend the judgment, and the judgment gets spread out over his family instead of all being directed at David. So um, we also need to remember in this, everything she's saying is not her own, not her own words. Joab has told her what to say. Literally, he put the words in her mouth is how I believe the ESD. Yeah, I saw that rendering, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, so, so she's wise in the fact that she can take what Joab wants her to say and then she can imp- improvise there on the spot with David and talk through the situation to bring the conversation back around to Joab's point of view. And so we need to remember who Joab is. Joab has been the guy who's been with David from the start. When David was running with Saul, when he was living among the Philistines at Ziklag, when you know, they were in the cave and the men were urging David to to kill Saul. Joab's with him when David sneaks into the camp. I mean, all of this time, Joab has seen David at his very best and he's seen David at his very worst. He is a guy who who is in a really unique position because he sees David like nobody else has seen him. And We've got to remember, even though Joab has seen David at his worst, Joab has some very specific expectations of a king, and their expectations have been shaped by his time and his culture. And so, as a king, in Joab's eyes, David has the right to do whatever he wants to do. That's part of being a king, because a king is not just a man. A king is a representative. He's the embodiment. Mm or he is the descendant of a god. And so, to make this appeal to David to say, hey, you know, set aside the consequences for murder. Suspend it. Joab saying, I want you to act like a god. I want you to do what only God has been, been doing in the past. And on one hand, David really is God's representative, and so he should do the things that God does. But on the other hand, this is Israel. Israel's not like other nations. David is not supposed to be a king like other nations. David, as the king, is still under the law. And so 
Joab is really in, in this place of a lot of tension between what is David's role as a king within the ancient Near East and what is David's role as a king of Israel, because those are two different things. Now, um, the other thing we need to remember is that Joab is loyal. He is fiercely loyal to David. Uh, you know, if we go back to the first part of this book, uh, he rages at David for letting Abner come into the camp and spy on David. He, <clears throat> excuse me, even though David seems to be very much at ease with accepting Abner's change in allegiance from Saul's house to David's house. And, you know, Joab wanted David to kill Saul and take the throne. And David was the one who kept bringing his mighty men back in. You know, Joab was willing to blindly obey David's command to kill Uriah. He had no idea, or at least we see no reason to think he had any idea why David wanted Uriah dead. Joab just did it. And whenever Joab conquered Rabbah, Remember, he sent that message back to David and said, hey, you need to get here so you can get the glory. The credit needs to mm -hmm. go to you. And, you know, in many ways, Joab is almost more loyal to David than David is to David. Joab's going to be the first person to defend David from himself. And sometimes he's a little overzealous with, with this position, as we saw, particularly with Abner and the fact that he does kill Abner both as an act of vengeance against the death of his brother. Of course, his brother died during war, and that was inappropriate. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. But he also, he was worried that Abner, you know, Abner joining in to David's side of things, what would that mean, both for David? You know, could it be that Abner wanted to become king and displace David? And also, you know, Abner might have displaced Joab as David's right-hand man. And Joab really doesn't want the rest of the world to see what he sees in David. He doesn't want the rest of the world to know that David has clay feet. He, he wants to defend that um, David's image. And he's always just a, in danger of taking a little bit too far. Uh, you know, he scolds David because, um, because of Abner. But then he also, um, he kind of scolded David with Rabbah. You know, why aren't you here? You need to be out here. Why are you staying at home? You know, this is kind of the, the subtext of the message that he sent back to David when, when he told David to show up at Rabbah to take the glory. And in this case, now with this woman of uh, Tekoa, what he's doing is he's saying it's time. Uh, I need David to do something. I need David to, to make this proper stand, to make this proper move. And I can manipulate him into doing what I think is right because I know it's right better than he does. And evidently at this moment, Joab thinks that Absalom is now the new heir apparent because, you know, Amnon's dead and he was originally the, the heir apparent. Now we need to get Absalom back because it's going to stabilize the kingdom. Not mm -hmm. having that heir, it, it, it's too much tension. And the other reason why Joab wants him back is because Joab sees the potential. I, I'm fully convinced of this, and, and I may be wrong, but this is what I think. I think Joab sees the potential, and the reason why I think he sees it, the potential in Absalom is when Absalom struck down Amnon, every other son ran. No one stood up to challenge Absalom and say, this is wrong. 
you shouldn't have done this. They didn't try to defend or avenge the death of their brother. They just let it happen and they got out of Dodge. Mm -hmm. And so as a warrior, as the lead warrior in David's army, he's going to see those guys with contempt. I mean, think of what he did when his own brother was killed. And so for him to look at these guys and go, who can be our next leader? Well, it's got to be the guy who's willing to stand up and say, you don't hurt my family. This was an important value for, for Joab. So verse uh, seven still, this is uh, 7b, and woman still talking to David. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench the, my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so here's where I'm saying that Abner, oh, sorry, that Joab sees Absalom as the heir apparent. Because remember, all of this is double speak, not about her sons. Her sons are probably fictitious. It is about, sorry, Absalom. And um, this is also revealing why Joab thinks that Absalom needs to, uh, why, sorry. Uh, this is uh, basically Joab saying Absalom doesn't deserve to die. He, he is not the one who needs to, to pay for Amnon's death. And he is saying that there are others who are clamoring for Absalom's death. And so what's interesting is everyone assumes at this point that Absalom is just a murderer. And they seem to forget who Absalom killed what Amnon had done. And, you know, it's Amnon's actions were enough to make David angry, but they weren't enough to make him angry to do anything about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, not only had Amnon raped Tamar, he had refused to marry her, despite having two years to have some kind of change of heart, uh, being willing to step up and do the right thing. David in two years had done nothing. And so... Joab really doesn't care why Absalom killed Amnon. He just cares that the dynasty needs to endure and it needs somebody who's strong enough to do it. Absalom is that guy. Out of all of David's sons, Absalom is the only one strong enough to do it in Joab's eyes. Mm -hmm. Now, the phrase uh, here, she uses an interesting phrase, quench my coal that is left. Uh, this is my hope for my family. We actually find it in a Babylonian writing where um, people without any kind of family, without any kind of sons to, or daughters to inherit, uh, are referred to as people whose brazier has been extinguished, uh, that their fire has gone out. And then, uh, let's see, Joab sees Absalom as the only hope for David's kingdom to survive. We've talked about that. You know, for his name to remain on the earth. Again, double speak from the woman about Absalom. Joab's words in her mouth. Then verse eight, the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. So, you know, David's answer is vague. He's not saying a whole lot. He, I'll take care of it later is pretty much what he's saying. He, he's giving her the brush off. Uh, it's not anything that's worthy of... Um, of a king to, to, to a not worthy answer from a king for anyone. And this is where we really see her wisdom on display because she pushes and she manages to push in such a way that she can 
not alienate the king. She actually pushes and draws him in. And we have to remember pushing a king at this point in time, it's dangerous. She is literally taking her life in her own hands to keep pushing David the way she is. I mean, if, if you go forward into Esther and we look at all of the machinations that, that Esther has to go through in order just to speak to the king who's her husband and to make sure that she doesn't lose her life by his hand, we kind of get a little bit more of a sense of the fire that this woman is playing with. I mean, because she's nobody to David. And so to keep pushing the king this way really shows a lot of guts. And the fact that she's able to do it successfully also demonstrates her wisdom. So verse 9, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. This is diplomacy at its finest. She's basically saying, okay, fine. That's great. You're going to give me, um, you're going to give me your word and that's wonderful. But we both know that it's probably not going to have any lasting impact. And so since it's not going to have any kind of lasting impact, we'll, we'll be okay. I'll, I'll just accept the guilt of it. And she, it's, it's very backhanded. The words are right, but the implication is a little bit more severe. She knows it. David knows it. It's that little bit of sting to get him to move, to get him to act. And so David doubles down and he becomes more emphatic and he expands his promise to her at this time. And it becomes a, a promise of protection to cover even the words spoken against this woman. And so she says, um, he says to her in verse 10, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and, I sh and he shall never touch you again. So the king's promise of protection, it's great, it's good, it's got value. But really, what happens when he leaves her present? What happens when she walks away? Is a mm -hmm. woman really going to be able to bring somebody to David if, you know, that she fears? Somebody who's threatening to kill her son? And notice again, he hasn't said anything about her son. He's still talking about her situation. He's promising to protect her as the woman, not the kid. That's who she's there to, to plead mercy for. So she pushes back again. She said, then peace, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. So again, that avenger of blood, we find that in Numbers 35, it makes that provision for anyone who's been killed, that the family member can avenge them as a way of enacting justice. and. What she's saying here is that Absalom is in danger of being killed by someone who wants to destroy the heir to the crown. She's laying mm -hmm. all of this out for David. And she is asking David to, to make this vow that he will not allow it to happen. Now, she's talking about the kid still. David still thinks she's talking about her kid. So in verse 11, uh, the second part, he says, as the Lord lives, not a hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So David gives the oath that she's requested and he invokes God's name so as not to, uh, you know, to make this as binding as possible. He's being as emphatic as possible. So you see him going from this, this little kind of, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it later 
to, look, I will take care of it. You're fine. Just tell me when something goes wrong to now he's making this oath. And now we're talking about a father making an oath about a child, but doing so blindly. We're right back to that story that we referenced in last week's um, episode where Jephthah makes the vow. Whatever comes out of my house to greet me after this battle, that's what I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. And of course, we know it's his daughter. She's the one who comes out. Nobody makes an outcry from everything we can tell from the text. She was sacrificed. Not that God condoned it or God wanted it, but that it did happen. We can't find any reason to really think that something otherwise happened. And then we had that contrast with Jonathan, where Saul said, anyone who ate, when I said that we were supposed to fast, even though it be Jonathan, you know, Saul just offers out Jonathan's name, not knowing Jonathan was the one who ate. And says, he would kill that person who, who did this. So we have this theme of fathers making oaths blindly concerning their own children. And the writer really wants you to understand that this is a reference to Absalom, because if you were raised in a Baptist church, and I think especially if you were male, probably more so than female, if you know one thing about Absalom, it's not all this other stuff. It's the fact that he had long hair. Mm-hmm. Because he was the example so many times I heard put out there, this is why men should not have long hair. And they talk about his death. I mean, but it's okay for women to get caught in trees or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no big... is that? I mean, if if you want to if you want to use that as your illustration, then you have to take it out to its logical conclusion, right? Well, women don't fight in battles, and Deborah doesn't count. So, uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But you you see how this this allusion to hair, which the writer's going to break in here in a little bit and remind us why the hair is is an illusion he's going to point it out and, and kind of hang a la- lantern on it so you don't miss it and but we as a reader we're supposed to know that's exactly what's going on here this is a conversation about absalom and so we've got david making this blind oath and we're kind of left with this this tension because we don't know what how it's going to play out because in jephthah's case the oath was made and a life was taken and in Saul's case, the oath was made with the intent to take life, but life was spared. David's oath is to spare life. So which way is it going to play out? I mean, if we're having a reversal here of previous stories, then this oath to save life very well could end up with life being taken. And the writer, I mean, he, he's really, he, he's, he's just awesome. Uh, and there's, there's times I'll get to reading along and I'll get so excited. It's like, Okay, who do I call and tell this to? <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because it's just too good to wait. So, verse 12. Um, the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. And he said, speak. So, this is not a woman you want to meet on the car lot. She is like, she is implementing sales techniques that I was taught when I worked commission sales. We had like, weekend seminars that taught you how to do this because she has gotten a yes out of David three times and that yes has gotten more and more emphatic 
here's the thing about people. If you can get your mark, I mean, potential customer to, to say yes three times, it's almost guaranteed they're going to say yes to that fourth question, no matter what it is. So she's managed to get David to say yes three times. And now she's got him committed to hearing her out. How do you make sure that your person that you're talking to is going to hear the full sales pitch? Get them to commit to listen before you start, because then they feel obligated and they will let you get through it. I mean, this this woman's good because there are people I know who have gone through these training seminars who who never got it. And you know, she's just like Abigail in the sense that she knows how to use words to play David and get him to, to do what she wants. And so she, she gets David to hear her and she starts in verse 13. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring the banished one home again. Few more words, but essentially the same message as when David, when Nathan turned to David and said, you are the man, you've convicted Mm -hmm. yourself, your words. Remember, David pronounced his own punishment with with Nathan. David was the one who said the guy should pay, whoever did that great evil should pay fourfold. And that's exactly what's playing out. And this is really the meat of what she was sent to tell David. This is what Joab wanted her to get to. And when Joab sends this message, his purpose is he wants David to know you know, Absalom needs to be brought home. You, you've got to get over yourself. It's time for you to, to make the right decision. Bring this kid home. Our kingdom needs him. Your dynasty needs him. You can't afford to have hurt feelings. And you need to be the father who can mediate not just between Amnon and Absalom, that, that's over, that's done with. But mm-hmm. Absalom and the other sons, the ones who want to kill Absalom, remove the heir, you, you need to step up because you're not dead yet. You know, it, it's okay for the sons to fight for the throne once the father's dead, but you don't get to do it while he's still alive. That's rebellion. So, right. you know, Joab, he, he's been really smart. And, you know, in the speech to the other story I'm reminded of, and I didn't go into to breaking down of whether there's a whole lot of similarities, but I think there are in the sense that, um, well, the story is the Syrophoenician woman talking to Jesus, and, you know, and Jesus saying, you know, you don't give the children's bread to the dogs, and the woman just keeps pushing back. And mm-hmm. I... So you see this this recurring theme of wise women in the Bible who are able to use their words effectively and to, are able to get men to listen and even to get Jesus to listen. And and I know um, that story is kind of controversial with Jesus and the, the Syrophoenician woman because, oh, he insulted her. And no, he invited her to have this conversation. This is how it works. We see the pattern time and time again in scripture. This is you, you push back. It's not just, you know, oh, you know, feel sorry for me and, you know, have mercy and pity on me. It, it is this this give and take and this really this meeting of equals because you don't use the, these kind of um, almost sarcastic ways of speaking 
to someone who's not your equal. You, that's just, right. It's, so the Syrophoenician woman does this. We see the woman of Tekoa do it with David. And, you know, and the way she dresses, uh, addresses David really, as far as the forms of, of her language, they're about the same as Jonadab, as far as my Lord, my King, I'm your servant. He's, she says all the right words. She, and she's not, I think we miss that because there's almost this idea that when the Bible's talking about women, you know, they're, they're wringing their hands and they're coming kind of coward and hunched down and, and very seldom do we do we stop and think of the the bravery and the courage it takes for these women to step up and say, I can correct a king. Right. And how many times in the Bible do we have women correcting men? It happens over and over again. We've got Sarah with Abraham, we got Deborah with Barak, we you know, we've got Abigail with David. Now we have this wise woman with Tekoa with, with David. And so women in the Bible, they weren't these little mice of women. They, they were willing to step up. You know, Esther corrects her husband. We can see over and over again that this boldness and this bravery to speak up when men are out of line is actually rewarded. And it's never, I, I don't want to say never because I haven't taken time to, to actually go through and verify. Very seldom when a woman speaks up to correct a man and and guide them back to where they should be are they told to sit down and shut up they're given respect and both from the men that they're speaking to most of the time and from god so i i think that's important and so anyway i she she's basically telling david that all these things that she fears for her son or that she's you know like i said probably her fictitious son is exactly what she's afraid of not just for herself, but for the nation. And so David needs to get his act together. And this could be dangerous in the sense that a widowed woman without children was one of the most vulnerable members of society. And right. so the fact that she was willing to say, we're in the same situation. You and I are in the same boat. I mean, that's a little bit of a wake-up call because the king of the nation, the most powerful man who who's, has almost godlike status in these ancient cultures, being no better off than the most vulnerable member of society, that's huge. We, we, we don't often allow those kinds of comparisons to be made without flinching just a little bit. But I think we can read past this because we don't, really think about what it meant to be that widowed woman and we don't think about what it entailed to be a king in those ancient cultures and, and the power and prestige that was attached to that because we don't understand what what it means to be a king we we mm. don't I mean, here in america big whoop you got a king whatever you know we kind of pride ourselves on being able to to dismiss royalty and so the fact that that we don't have any kind of uh, contemporary reference to look at kind of makes us a little less understanding of their situation. And we might miss some of these keynotes within the Bible itself. So um, verse 14, she's, she's still talking. This is a really long speech, by the way, from a woman to the king. 
Uh, it's one of the longer speeches by women in the Bible. But right. first, yeah, I, Bergen, I think, actually. One of, the longer, one of the longer speeches in the Bible in general. In general, yeah. Yeah, and particularly from a woman. I think I think Deborah is like one of the few that's actually longer. Uh, but verse 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. So um, you, another smart technique. We must all die. Still unifying herself, still uniting herself with David in his circumstance and his situation. But the weird thing about humanity, um, we are so much quicker to to identify with each other and to to unite ourselves with each other in tragedy than we are with favor and prestige. And mm-hmm. so, whenever we say we're all going to die, I mean this is just basic human condition now one of the things i really liked in uh one of the jewish commentaries i read was that uh she's giving david it an education in torah at this point that she is reminding david of the truth enacted in the garden and so she becomes david's torah teacher in this moment and you know Something you would never hear in a Baptist church, <laughs> but I, I I don't know if we can go that far with what's on the page. But I mean, it does appeal to um, appeals to me for obvious reasons. But the the we in this statement kind of takes the sting away from the you in the accusation, and so she's she's reminding David, rich or poor, you know, this is something we all have in common, man, woman, it doesn't matter. And she picks up on a view that David had already expressed previously in chapter 12. And you know, Alter points out, David had been very pragmatic about death back when his son died, the one who, who he'd had with Bathsheba. You know, the, you know, the Lord could save, the Lord may not. Although he was alive, there was hope. He's dead now. Now we pick up, we go on with life, and we stop acting, you know, we stop grieving because we can't change anything. And so, you know, David had acknowledged the futility of this grief. And she's basically saying, it's time for you to stop grieving. It's time for you to stop being enraged. It's happened. It's over. It's done with. We have to deal with the situation at hand. So verse 14b, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain banished. Okay, this is the good news. This is the gospel. God devises ways to give life. God devises ways to bring back the lost, to restore those who have been in exile. This is what all of us hang our hopes on because this is the God that we believe and have faith in to do all these things. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that, that I love about this is so often... When there's a criticism of God's character, you know, it's uh, hellfire and damnation, it's judgment, it's wrath, and people point this out about how cruel and awful God is because he does these things, and they're always pointing back to the Old Testament God, and they're always saying, see, here, look, you can find it in your Bible, all these awful things he did. What they are failing to notice are all the wonderful and good things the people from that time are saying about God. Yep. 
And so the the people of Israel actually testify about God's grace, his his mercy, his compassion. And so we need to look at what they said and what they're looking at within their own culture and their testimony of God's character. I mean, we can go to the Psalms and look at how many things, how many ways does the psalmist praise God for being mm-hmm. this great and wonderful God. Now, if they're in the middle of those times, and they're the ones who understand the truth of their situation as we never could, we need to trust their testimony about the character and nature of God. And so this is where commentators start to get derailed because they want to talk about whether David has the right as a king to pardon a murderer and they want to talk about whether or not in allowing Absalom to come home David is extending grace and mercy in the right manner and I have to admit that even I started to get derailed because I'm reading all these commentaries and I'm looking at all these arguments and I realized Oh my goodness, I fell for it. The writer of Samuel has done something really clever here. And I mean, it's so clever, I think most of us miss it. He has put us in the mindset of everybody in Israel looking at the situation with Amnon and Absalom. He's suckered us into thinking this is a question of murder. It's not. Notice who's disappeared from the story. Tamar is gone. We have not heard her name since the previous chapter. Right. And that was from Jonadab, who we don't really care what Jonadab has to say. He's the last person to speak her name. This whole story is about Amnon doing something evil. And Absalom responding to it. So what we need to look at, surprise, surprise, isn't what our emotional reaction is. We need to look at what does the Torah say about the situation. So under the Torah, God had decreed that Tamar had a right to justice. She had a right to certain um certain protections under the law no one not even her own father bothered to um bothered to enact these things i mean in in absalom gave like i said two years absalom gave plenty of time for somebody to step up and make sure that his sister her needs were addressed Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. according to to torah we got two options here so According to Torah, one of two things should have happened to Amnon. If we go back to Leviticus 18, he should have been cut off from his community, should have been sent into exile because he dared to approach his sister. Leviticus 18 forbids all sorts of incest. It says there's no, you know, these are things that are abomination. If you practice Mm -hmm. these things, you will be spit out of the land of Israel. Don't do them. So by that logic, Amnon's gone. He's not part of the family anymore. He's not part of the community. He just needs to be sent out. 
Now, if we go to Deuteronomy 22 and we start looking at the rape laws, this is where it gets a little dicier because we have this division in the rape laws between the, the virgin who is not betrothed mm-hmm. and the one who is betrothed. Mm-hmm. Now, if she's betrothed, then the rapist gets killed. If she's not, then the rapist is supposed to pay um, a bride price to the father. And it's really interesting to look at the, the Talmud and see how they break down where that should be paid and how. Right. But the bride price should be paid to the father. And then she has the option of marrying him, which Tamar wanted to enact, which is interesting. We'll get back to this. But he had, he, she has the option of marrying him and, and reclaiming some honor in the community, which we know that Amnon did not want to do that. He kicked her out. He locked the door. He, he made sure that was not even a possibility. And so he was not willing to follow the Torah even after he broke it. So he had a chance to, to repent and do the right thing, and he refused. Now, which law should be enacted kind of, kind of it doesn't depend on whether or not Tamar was betrothed. As a king's daughter, one of the things we know, and it still happened until just a few hundred years ago, royal babies were engaged very early on. To think that she may not have been betrothed is almost kind of ludicrous. David probably had a groom lined up for her from the moment that he found out he had a daughter. Women were useful, especially beautiful women, and Tamar was a beautiful woman. So the idea she wasn't betrothed is it's kind of hard to swallow, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't matter so, because the point is that within Deuteronomy 22, there, there's this verse. And it's got all of this talk about the statutes concerning rape before and all of the statutes concerning rape after. And then right in the middle of all of this, it says, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Okay, so all of a sudden, you know, talk about rape. And then we have this sentence about murder thrown in here in the middle. And it tells you why. Because he met her in an open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to help her. Now, the point of the fact that she's betrothed isn't that, oh, she belonged to another man. It's that she was one of the protected members of society. To have a man that she was attached to meant that there was a certain level of security she should have. So despite, or though, pick your word, they both mean the same thing. Despite the fact she's betrothed, she was still attacked. She could have called out for help. She didn't get help. There was no one to protect her. Kind of like the two brothers fighting in the field. There's no one there to protect her. So you pick up on these elements of this language, once again, that this woman has managed to weave together. So this woman, despite the fact she should have been protected, wasn't. And therefore, it's the same as murder. Well, what happens when you have murder? We've already gone over this. When someone's murdered, there's a blood avenger. There's somebody who can come back and right the wrong and enact justice. Mm. Because, okay. yeah. So, I see where you're going now. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it makes so 
much sense when you put everything into play. Absalom did not break the law. He's not a murderer. He's a blood avenger for his sister because the rape was as a murder. And she should have been protected, but she wasn't. And even though, yes, the scripture says specifically an open field, remember, case law, an open field is something everybody understood as being desolate, as being someplace that no one could hear a woman cry. Yeah, someplace uh, private and alone. Yes, it's not the division of, oh, wait a minute, well, if you're in the city walls, then, you know, it's your fault. That, that's not what it's saying. It, it's making that point. If you can't be heard, then you're not at fault. That's the point. And that was how it was applied. And so what do we know about the story? We know that Amnon sent the servants away. No one could hear her. No one who could help her could hear her. And so the fact that she should have been protected whether or not she was betrothed, she's the king's daughter. She she should have enjoyed some level of security. She's in her brother's home. She should have been able to feel safe there. She wasn't heard. She meets all the criteria laid out in the case law as a woman who should be able to have someone avenge this great wrong done to her. And this is the reason why Absalom is not a murderer. And the problem is, as we're reading through this chapter, Tamar's name's not mentioned. Rape isn't mentioned. Violence against women. No other women are even brought up in this entire scenario. The the only woman we have is the woman of Tekoa. And yet, this all hinges on Tamar's story. And so we as as a reader, we're we're brought into this mindset and this perspective of the ancient audience where you know, what happens to a woman isn't that important. It isn't all that significant to the story. I mean, when we read these sections in our Bible where women are attacked or abused, so often we just rush right past them because they make us uncomfortable. And so this... this um, act- Well, we either brush right past them because it makes us uncomfortable, or we, we brush right past them because we have this idea in our mind that Oh, well, of course women are going to be abused in that scenario because we have this this idea that, you know, all ancient cultures just completely treated women like property. Right. Well, and we know because Tamar herself, she cites it, such a thing is not done in Israel. Women are not abused in Israel. This is what one of the things that makes Israel different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if you would abuse a woman in Israel, you're a fool. You deserve to die. You're somebody God might strike dead. And so that's what happened with Nabal whenever he refused to listen to his wife and honor her wisdom. So it really becomes this, this, this much richer picture of how women are valued, even though we may not see them show up in these major parts as consistently as men do within the Bible. But there is this this foundation of you respect women, you protect your sister, you don't do these things. Why? Because we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. And so you don't treat her, you know, Simon and Levy, they talk about Dina and they say, you know, you don't get to treat her like a prostitute. That's not that's not how we treat our women. And they set the set the standard. For, for how women were to be treated. And that's what Tamar, when she cites, because remember, 
the Torah, which Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, even though you have these narratives, those become the examples of how law is enacted and how law is fulfilled. And so even though it's not a thus saith the Lord or thou shalt not, like we, you know, we think of the law being the Ten Commandments, the mm -hmm. narratives present the law just as much in the Jewish mindset as those long lists that we might read in other places. You know, so, you know, one of the ways we see this most clearly is when God tells Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful and multiply. They see that as a commandment. That's not just a, a sidebar in a story or a part of a plot. That, that's a commandment. And so when you have these narratives that explain to you, hey, this is how the law is enacted and this is why, it's actually more forceful and more, more emphatic than just a list. And so this is the reason why we need the narratives, because the narratives teach us how to enact these laws. And so the writer, and like I said, the writer ha has done something just pretty fascinating and brilliant because he doesn't just tell the story. He shifts you around as the reader to, to help you lose perspective for a moment. And he's done it so well that all of these commentaries, they, they don't, they don't even acknowledge it. But like I said, I'm not seeing, I haven't seen any of the commentaries actually go back and connect chapter 14 back to 13 when we have so many obvious connections back to these two, you know, back to that previous chapter. There's a reason they're back to back. There's a reason we have a wise man and a wise woman, a son of um, David's brother, a son of David's sister. And we have these, these two opposing people who, who take on these similar roles and we, we have to watch how it plays out. And because I think, I think because so often we have men reading these stories and I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing the men. I'm just saying that, Men reading these stories don't read them with the same sensitivity to the female characters that women reading the story do. Just right. because, I mean, when you're a girl growing up in church, you look for the women that you can identify with in the Bible. And you hope to find somebody that you can, you know, pick out as your favorite Bible character. And, you know, so often your, your choices seem limited. And so... You, you start to really mine the text for every little thing you can find about women because it's so scarce where, you know, you guys have got so many people. You want to be like Peter, Paul, you know, who, who do you want to be like? They're all there. They're all options. And so the women kind of get blurred and especially whenever we don't actually teach their stories. And so we have to go back and look at what does scripture actually say about a woman in this predicament? And the thing is, we don't do it, but the, the people in the story didn't do it. And so we see how this is a problem that is not just something that is limited to David's day or Absalom's day. It, it's a problem that still continues to play out within our Bible study um, today. So now she... she the woman of Tekoa, she asked that David devise a way to bring the banished one back. What's so interesting uh, about this is um, all David has to do is declare, hey, 
Absalom did the right thing. He all he's got to do is do what Judah did when Tamar, the original Tamar back in Genesis, confronted Judah with his sin. Is say, you know, my son's been more righteous than I. All David has to do is make the decree. He doesn't have to devise some kind of grand scheme. All he has to do is say, I support him. He did what I should have done. Oh, wait a minute. There's the problem. David doesn't want to admit that his son did something better than he did. And the reason why David cannot do that is because if he admits that Absalom was right, then now he's going to have to face what he's done on a completely different level. He's going to have to face what he's done as far as not taking care of his daughter and in regards to Bathsheba and Uriah. And all of David's sins are going to have to be confronted once more. And because that's why this is happening. And so, um, you know, if David would have spoken up, and if David would have actually moved in compassion towards Absalom, then things could have been better. And he's proven that this is effective. How is he saying he could defend the, the woman's son, this woman of Tekoa? How, how, how does he, he make that happen? He makes a vow. He takes an oath. So he can take an oath in defense of this guy he's never met, who may not even exist. Can't right. do it for his own son. And so it, it's very, re the, the whole story is very revealing. And the, the point of, of this really is that Absalom isn't in Gesher because he's afraid of the people. He is in Gesher because he doesn't think that his father would defend him. And, and why should he? Because his father didn't defend Tamar. And, mm -hmm. you know, David has, <laughs> he's just convicted himself and he's just, explained why he's been so wrong in this situation and he's finally getting a clue and it isn't that David really needs a story to understand that he can bring Absalom back I mean David understands that murder and violence can absolutely have a place in the royal house after all he's been the one who's committed murder and violence you're uh, you know, against well against Uriah. Joab is a murderer, so excusing murderers really, like I said, not a problem. Even if that's how the writer wants to frame it, or how other people within the kingdom want to frame it, he just he can't acknowledge that he ignored the wound of his daughter, which is ironic, given the fact that he's standing here saying, "Absolutely, I'll defend a woman in need." Absolutely. I'll give a royal decree. I'll make an oath to God. If, if it's going to help this woman, this stranger I never met, I can give her compassion. I can consider her, her request for help. But he ignores his own daughter crying in the streets, covered in ashes. This story convicts David of so much more than just failing to deal with Absalom as a murderer, it, it, it mm -hmm. convicts David as being a miserable father. And so this is a, this is a 
common theme we find in the Bible is the fathers often fail. Abraham was a horrible father. Moses was a horrible father. Jacob was a horrible father. And about the time they seem to start getting it right, and we start to see them having these more positive interactions with their sons, we realize they still haven't stepped up to the plate as far as their, their daughters are concerned, as far as the women are concerned. <clears throat> so the fact that this is revealed, and then we have Jesus, where women have such a large role in his ministry, and they're shown such a great deal of respect. Once mm -hmm. again, we see Jesus' superiority to every biblical hero and every biblical patriarch that's come before. And that's the reason why we can celebrate him as women and women can, can embrace Christianity. I mean, th this is the reason why Christianity became the movement that was known for having women and slave followers, because Jesus did something that nobody else had done within Judaism and that certainly not other religions, not in the same way, but where women can be protected, have security and be valued for who they are aside from the, you know, political pawns or, or broodstock. And so this is, this was so new to the ancient world that people didn't even know how to begin to understand the significance that, you know, I get excited. The, the, the significance that women hold in Christianity, they didn't just hold it back then, that they still hold in Christianity today, it is exceptional. And especially when we look at other religions and because it calls us not just to be um, quiet or submissive, and it doesn't call us to be, you know, these outlandish leaders. It calls us to, to find a proper balance where we aren't just out doing whatever we want, but we also aren't treated as doormats. It, in essence, it treats us with the same respect that it treats men. That's the, that's the amazing part of Christianity, that there is no one gender above or below the other in value and worth and, and the, the security and protection it offers. So um, she's still got a lot more to say, but I think we're going to call it probably quits there because I'm burning up in here. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're hopefully going to upgrade your mic soon so you won't have to turn your air off when we record. We'll see how that goes. Yay! <laughs> be Please. a good thing because so. <laughs> it looks like we're going to be doing the remote thing for a little while yet so yeah um but yeah well that's that's a good place to pause um everyone thanks for joining us you, again as always if you want to be part of the conversation hit us up in raven creek sc on all the social media ravencreeksc.com where you can find show notes and some shows produced by other members of the club as it were <laughs> um and uh just you know, fun times to be had by all. And uh, <laughs> we look forward to seeing you, seeing you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.